Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. Over the past 15 years, the cost to launch a rocket into orbit has declined dramatically thanks to SpaceX. Today, we're witnessing the launch of a new space age, one built around billionaires like Elon Musk, but also a flowering of smaller private ventures. To discuss the state of play in the emerging orbital economy, I brought Ashley Vance on this episode of Faster Please, the podcast. Ashley is the author of the new book, When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, the uh, the book begins uh, with a, a story of the uh, first successful orbital launch of a SpaceX Falcon 1. There were three failed attempts. The whole thing's looking pretty dicey about the future of the company and this effort. And on a fourth attempt, September 2008, they're able to get to orbit and release a uh, a payload. So before September 2008, what does the space economy, space industry look like? Like, So where are we starting? Yeah, well, the starting point, sort of sadly, <laughs> is, it looked a lot the same for, for many, many decades. You know, we we had this nation-backed uh, space programs were, were dominant. Um, there were just a, a handful of nations, really, that were the major players in all this. Some... Um, Wealthy people at various stages had come along and and tried to to commercialize space and make their own rockets and had varying degrees of success, but no staying power. Uh, you know, they it ended up it always takes longer and costs more than you think. And and NASA was always sitting there really as your main competitor and, and undermining your business. And so with the with the Falcon one, it really was this this watershed type moment where finally somebody had succeeded. And, you know, somebody. Yes, SpaceX had people from traditional aerospace, but Elon certainly was not from the aerospace world. And and he had a lot of 20 somethings on his team who had never done this before. So, you know, it just signaled this this new era or the possibility of a new era because you had people just who who hadn't been part of the old guard doing this thing so the goal here was to get a rocket into space and get it there way cheaper than what nasa was doing so what was sort of the key sort of breakthrough that allowed that declining cost and why didn't nasa just do this you know, NASA and in particular the Department of Defense had desired this type of thing for a long time, a, a low-cost rocket that could get to space um, quickly and, and often. And and they had it seems like this should be doable, but they'd really struggled, struggled to make it happen. The DOD had funded various efforts, and they, you know, there's a couple things going on. I mean, SpaceX had this huge advantage, I think, of this clean slate to this. So they came at this without the usual baggage. And in this case, the baggage means a lot of military 
government contractors who are pricing things quite expensively. They're doing things the way they've always done them, which means you probably don't want to see any sort of failure. So you're building in a ton of redundancy and spending all this extra money to to make sure you look good when this this thing goes and so spacex comes in with this clean slate elon you know the original pitch deck for spacex described it as like the southwest for space i mean so cost was like at the top of his mind and wanted to make this this cheap and so they did have some breakthroughs right i mean look the, the physics around a rocket are the physics and we've known this for decades you really can't do some there's not much room for huge breakthroughs in engineering that nobody's thought of yet but they did come in with this modern silicon valley style approach to software particularly to electronics um, although this kind of comes in later in spacex's history but where spacex was going to build a lot of the electronics themselves often turning to to consumer grade electronics instead of what people call space grade, which just means it's built by a military contractor. It probably costs a thousand times what it should cost, but it's guaranteed to work in space. Um, and so they had this, this clean slate. They did things as cheap as possible. The team was small. It wasn't this bloated contractor. And so that was their primary advantage at the beginning. I would argue, you know, over time as they've gotten much bigger and much more money's coming. There's a, a whole host of technological advantages, but on the Falcon one, it really was that clean slate, this, this low cost approach. Obviously, if you're beginning your book, which is not a, which is not a history of SpaceX, you're beginning with SpaceX, then that certainly that must've marked an important inflection point where you, you could sort of imagine two paths here, one path, that the 2010s look a lot like the 2000s, which look a lot like the 90s, uh, versus this very different path. Why is SpaceX important in creating this new path? And sort of what do things look like now? Yeah, I'm so glad you called that out and you phrased it the way you did with this two paths, because a lot of people, my editors were giving me grief for why are you spending so much time talking about SpaceX in the prologue of this book that's not going to be about SpaceX. But, you know, as you pointed out, I can easily imagine, by the way, having dealt with book <laughs> editors, I can imagine yeah. that conversation quite easily. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I wanted people to know how fragile this was and where it had come from. You know, you mentioned it. Three of the previous rockets had failed. SpaceX was running out of money. They were running out of credibility. People had been on this island, Kwajalein, for six years, basically losing their minds. If this rocket does not go, you know, I think we do end up in that that scenario that you were just talking about, where the 2010s look pretty much like they always had. And, and so it was important to me just to give people this history, how hard this is. And yes, yeah, so I see this as this inciting incident. It's funny because we you kind of go from governments and then there there were like honest to god billionaires before that when elon started spacex i mean he was rich but he wasn't rich like he is now you know we were talking about like a hundred million dollars he put into spacex so the the bar had come down quite a bit um but you know in that moment when this rocket flies and then in the years that follow when spacex really starts to hit his his stride its stride this unlocks the, all of this, you know, there was so much enthusiasm for space and young kids who wanted to get into this industry and it had been slow and boring and, and the excitement had sort of come out of it. You had the generation of people who had grown up watching Apollo. Those people were getting older and there wasn't something new to look at for, for a lot of people who were much younger. And and so here it is, you know, here's this this company that's making commercial space 
real. And this guy, Elon, is quite eccentric and, and interesting. And, and people, some people sort of want to be like him, but they also it just unlocked this. It's I, I think I write about it in the book. I mean, it was sort of like the four minute mile to me. It's like once somebody does it, then all of a sudden you see lots of people now are breaking the four minute mile. This thing that seemed impossible it turns out is possible and and you have this unlocking in your head of of what people can do and so i just think across the world it unlocks this this passion this latent engineering smarts and energy and 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 made this seem real and so you you end up with with startups all over the world chasing rockets and satellites in the book you write the future that all these space buffs have already started building is one in which many rockets blast off every day these rockets will be carrying thousands of satellites that will be placed not all that far above our heads. The satellites will change the way communications work on Earth by, for one, making the Internet an inescapable presence with all the good and bad that entails. The satellites will also watch and analyze the Earth in previously unfathomable ways. The data centers that have reshaped life on our planet will be transported into orbit. We are, in effect, building a computing shell around the planet. Okay, now other than SpaceX, who are the companies building that computer shell? You know, the one that comes to mind is is, is the next sort of central actor in the book, which is this company called Planet Labs, which is based in San Francisco. And, you know, for people who don't know, I mean, they already surround the Earth with about 250 imaging satellites. They can take, well, and they do take, pictures of every spot on the Earth's landmass every day, multiple pictures. And so they have, um, unlike even our the world's biggest governments, China, Russia, the U.S., which, which have spy satellites, obviously, but they only have a handful of spy satellites and they tend to only look where um, interesting things might be happening. Planet sees everything that's happening all the time, and this is not some far off concept they they had this full constellation up and running in 2018 and have just been adding to it ever since and and you know at the time they launched in low earth orbit there were about 200 satellites and and planet had put up about 250 and so you know they're about 10 percent of of like all the satellites in space just from this small private company um in california that, that grew out of nasa ames the the silicon valley center and so they're indicative of today we have many many several companies trying to build these space internet constellations each of which require on the order of 10 to twenty thousand satellites you've got more imaging satellites along the lines of planet that do all kinds of different things and then you got a ton of, of sort of scientific satellites and then the whole premise is that there are many more ideas yet to come when you watch a spy movie they're always talking about retasking the satellite like there's only one satellite over all of asia or something but what we're talking about now is satellites pretty much everywhere looking everywhere anytime you want yeah and i mean that that movie stuff is, is true. I mean, that's usually what had to happen. I mean, you know, so so just as like SpaceX brought the cost of rocket launches down and and created this 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 revolution in rocketry, you know, I argued Planet had an attendant effect on on satellites. So I, I did mention before. I mean, a traditional satellite is like the size of a school bus cost 500 million to two billion dollars to make people sit there working on it for like six years it's supposed to go into space and stay there for 20 years it's you know you can imagine like the electronics on a 20 year old satellite that's trying to do its job 
Planet I can also, ma- I can also imagine the tension of make of that of that launch going wrong. Like that can't go wrong for many reasons. And once the satellite gets up in space, that also has to work, right? So that's why you're spending two billion dollars because if that thing doesn't work, somebody, a lot of people are losing their jobs. You know, and a company or a, a military uh, outfit is, is is in dire straits. So Planet rethought this whole thing. They're like, okay, well, let's make them much smaller. Let's put them closer to Earth almost like a disposable sort of thing. It, it, you know, even they have had like a rocket launches where they lot, you know, they're sending up dozens at a time. They've had rocket launches, a couple, they had bad luck at the beginning that blew up and they lost all their, their satellites on those, but it wasn't a make or break moment for the company because these satellites are relatively cheap, a hundred grand each. And so, um, you know, they rethought the whole thing and then they were able to surround the earth. It's basically like a line scanner and the earth just turns under these satellites and it's just photographing all the time. It sounds a lot like, uh, we were talking about before espionage and and spy stuff. And, And there are uses for that. Although the resolution on these, you can't see somebody's face or anything like that. You, you mostly look at something like the size of a car, but you know, this is really, these satellites are geared to what I call um, like monitoring the real time activity of humans on earth. It's like, where are we building stuff? Where's our oil being stored? Where is it going? How are our forests? Are they, how many trees are in the Amazon? Is somebody cutting them down? The sort of movement of economic activity and environmental activity on earth. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, uh, if you're trying to determine like the GDP of a country that may not be particularly honest with with its uh, 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 you know government statistics, well, you could either accept the statistics and try to figure it out, or you could just you know look at it from space, like you know how much you know where, how many lights are going out, is there more activity, and try to gauge it in a in a, in a more visual way. I mean, are there companies doing doing that for like more private sector reasons? This happens today, right? So, you know, China will say, we have this much oil in our reserves. Well, it turns out these satellites can spot all your oil storage systems because of the way the oil, the storage systems work, where they have these floating lids that can go up and down, depending how much oil is in there. The satellites can actually measure the shadow that's being reflected on the side of this this tanker. And you could calculate, uh, people argue very accurately, how much oil um, is being stored. So they, you know, we do this places like Saudi Arabia, China comes out with its official economic metrics. And now we have a version of the truth where people come back and say, no, you know, you have way more oil <laughs> stored up than you've, you've been letting on. I think this is going to be a big deal um, not to go on a huge tangent, but you know, China's economy appears to be slowing. Uh, I'm quite certain the government will put the best possible spin on things and, and how they're performing. You, we can look not only at oil, you can look at construction, how many buildings are going up, how many houses are going up, um, all kinds of economic indicators. So what has the growth in the number of satellites looked like in recent years? And do you have a sense of how that growth will continue over the next decade or so? Oh, I can do that one easy. <laughs> the you know, from like 1960 to 2020 in low Earth orbit, we'd managed to put up about 2,500 satellites, and it, it was not on a uh, exponential curve. We we kind of got a whole bunch up, and then every year you would add maybe 20 to 50, depending on sort of what was going on. So it was this very slow, steady march the last few years. So that's 2020. 2,500. Already, as we're sitting here today, there's now about 10,000. So that number is, is almost as 
almost quadrupled. It's getting close to quadrupling by the end of this year. So we are now on an exponential curve, and and almost all of those satellites are commercial satellites, not military or government satellites that have been added. Um, and so we're going to go from ten thousand. If you look at all the launch manifest for the rocket companies, uh, we get to a hundred thousand in the next decade, and quite likely two hundred thousand the decade after that or maybe sooner so you know this is a totally new era of what it looks like in right above our heads uh the astronomers can't be happy no you know i i'm sort of baffled by some of this because um you know spacex and starlink have been the major driver of this huge increase as they're trying to build out their space internet system um spacex is now the world's largest satellite manufacturer by several orders of magnitude and you know this was no secret they had to apply for all these licenses to put these satellites up years in advance everybody there are other people trying to build a space internet the astronomers never complained until the second spacex did its first launch and put the satellites up and everyone could see this kind of string of pearls flying above them as the, the satellites start to spread out and and i was gonna i was amused and sort of baffled i guess that that they waited until this was already underway to really start kind of complaining about this um but it, you know the die is cast as far as i can tell and and you could argue for the earthbound telescopes, this is not great. On the other hand, if rocket launches are coming way down, if we're finally putting Moore's law in space, the opportunity to put scientific instruments above this low earth orbit field and do a whole bunch of interesting things increases quite dramatically. You know, if you had to build up $300 million for a rocket launch in the past just to have a go at putting your scientific instrument up. And now you can do it for anywhere from whatever, call it like 6 million to 60 million. You know, it's a, it's a new era where more people really should get a chance. Earlier, you talked about SpaceX as the Southwest Airlines of space, but that's really not what it is anymore. Today, it's the high-end company and other entrepreneurs have filled that space below it. Is that right? Exactly. You know, SpaceX built that Falcon 1, which was meant to cost just a few million dollars to launch and then quickly abandoned it the second it worked and moved to the much larger Falcon 9, in part because we didn't quite yet have companies like Planet Labs. It, Planet Labs came around 2012, a few years after the Falcon 1 launch, and really was the first to start thinking about all setting up thousands or hundreds of satellites. And um, so SpaceX retired the Falcon 1. You had kind of this this gap, and then all of a sudden, you know, there were some of these companies are real, some of them aren't, but there's about a hundred, you know, rocket startups trying to make a, a rocket. Even SpaceX today, the Falcon Nine runs about sixty to seventy million dollars a launch. Now you have dozens of companies trying to do um, launches, starting at, you know, if you believe these numbers, like two million dollars a launch, and and probably like somewhere between five and twelve is a realistic figure. And, you know, the leader in this category is is in the book is, is this company Rocket Lab founded by Peter Beck, and they have made a rocket called Electron, which has flown now dozens of times and, and is really the sort of like a perfectly engineered small rocket. If we can have the Internet everywhere for everybody, like like what does that enable? So what do these satellites uh, enable? I think starting with the space internet is a good one. Um, 
even though we often feel like we're connected to the internet all the time and we have our, our cell phones, you know, the truth of it is there's there's these huge gaps all around the planet. And it probably means more on an infrastructure sense than it does on an individual not being able to check their email for a few hours. Uh, but, you know, what we're creating now is a blanket of internet that will have the earth always connected. I just, this part is, is makes a lot of sense to me. It's very obvious. I just think this is the next step of our technology build out. Just like in the nineties, we had to put data centers and fiber everywhere to sort of get the internet going. Now you want this persistent internet that can connect people and all sorts of devices all the time. And that's what we're building in space. So just this, this internet heartbeat that's washing over everything you've ever heard about, like, internet of things like sensors on container ships reporting back or like things out in the farm checking the soil moisture none of this like really has worked and the reason why is because we haven't had this sort of persistent internet connection if you think about like a world full of drones and flying cars and self-driving cars all these things that have to be talking in remote spots to to have all this work it's just this glue that needs to be there so that's that's like case number one that i think does check out um and then of course you got you have three and a half billion people that just cannot be reached by fiber optic cables today and they're not allowed to participate in the modern economy and, and there's like such obvious evidence that the second High-speed internet arrives in a country, education levels go up, economic levels go up. And, and so this is sort of just like a fairness thing and letting the whole world participate in what's going on. No, that's fantastic because sometimes I think people, one, I think they're unaware of what's going on. Maybe they're they're kind of aware of SpaceX, but that's pretty much it. And, and when they think of SpaceX, they're probably mostly thinking of uh, Elon Musk wants to take us to Mars. And they don't, right. I don't, I don't think they understand very much about the satellites unless they've heard astronomers complain about it. I don't think they understand like these economic and business case and just like that it's all happening. Uh that's why this is yeah. why you know everyone focuses on the moon and Mars and it's all cool and everything and it's still just very far out and I mean this is why I wrote the book I was like you people do not understand that we are building like a legit economy right over our heads and this thing is pretty well underway and and I think it is going to change life here on Earth quite quickly. Are any of the companies that you're that that you're looking at are they involved with creating? uh like new new space stations there's been a lot of talk about creating space platforms what they'll do up there i'm not sure exactly there's there's talks about creating different kinds of products and shooting movies and doing you know biotechnology research uh any of the companies cover are they involved with that that those efforts yeah, I mean, this is in the book. I spend less time on things like space habitats and and some of these other businesses. But yes, you know, I do talk about them briefly. But um, more importantly, I suppose for this conversation, yes, all this is happening, right? So, so in the past, you had the International Space Station. It's this this multinational, huge bureaucratic thing that actually works pretty well. But but that's who's driving it. And now we have a number, a handful of startups making space habitats. We've got SpaceX um, leading the way with, with this kind of like, I guess you could call it tourism. I mean, being able to send people to these things, private citizens, this is already happening. You know, we've had private astronauts now going to space on SpaceX rockets. And so um, they'll go to those habitats 
a startup, a fascinating startup called Varda launched uh, just a couple months ago. You know, they have put what you could argue is the first manufacturing system in space. It's it's making um, medicines. You, you, you can do things without gravity, pushing on molecules in space that you can't do on Earth. They're trying to make a whole new class of pharmaceuticals um, and bring them back to Earth. I think that's just the earliest example. There's things like asteroid mining that I thought were total jokes and um are still quite far off but there's a startup astroforge same thing they set up their first test miner earlier this year like all this stuff is actually happening now you know the business cases on these things i think some will work and some won't but we're gonna we're gonna find out uh so what what's the uh <laughs> what's the unnerving aspect i mean it, it's you know too much of what I, I I write about this a lot is that we immediately jump to sort of the the you know the downsides you know what are the costs uh, so I didn't want to certainly lead with that but so are there things about this that people should be concerned about I mean space junk other things yeah I mean I am optimistic on the whole um, history would tell us that when humans <laughs> find a new territory in which to conquer uh, you know usually. Mistakes are made. It doesn't always go really well. We have a we have a reality setting up right now where you had this handful of governments moving very slowly, launching a rocket once a month. Now we're moving to like every day and thousands of satellites, and and you know it really is a bit of uh, whoever gets their first wins sort of scenario. You know, so once you start adding kind of a race to these things, that often doesn't go well. Um, the thing that everybody is worried about is is these satellites crashing into each other and creating a debris field in low Earth orbit. And obviously this would like, none of these companies want that to happen. They're the ones spending hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to build these things. And, and we do have systems in place to track this stuff, but that becomes a nightmare. There's a scenario where it's called the Kessler syndrome, where one of these things breaks apart and it just starts ripping into everything else. And then low earth orbit becomes essentially unusable. That's not only bad for this new stuff that we're talking about, but you know, there's things like GPS that make the modern world work <laughs> that would no longer work um, if that happens. And so, so that's a huge issue. I think we're gonna have, if you think about, um, you know, these were nation states that had a lot of control. The, the rockets are essentially ICBMs, more or less. Um, you had a select group of space-faring nations. I think that's all going to change quite soon. Whoever wants a rocket blasting off from their country can have one. Almost anywhere can afford a satellite. I mean, you're talking about like a hundred grand just to kind of get going. Um, so you're going to have nation states that that no longer can really be controlled the way they were or that now have access to space. Are they going to follow all the same rules that everybody else has been following for decades? Probably not. And then I think the real wild card is Russia. This is a country whose space program was already flagging. Um, SpaceX has eaten up a ton of their business. It's rife with corruption. Uh, the war in Ukraine has made them unusable for many, many countries as far as setting up satellites and people. And they're a wild card. You know, space is not... It's not just some flight of fancy for Russia. It's something that's baked deep into the national pride and is near and dear to their hearts. They have no commercial space companies, startups at all. Um, 
you know, are they a rational actor in this new world as they see they're being this dominant superpower that it's just it's going to go away for sure uh i'm, I'm going to finish by asking you the mars question about spacex <laughs> like is that going to happen do you think that is like that is a serious goal for that company that uh you can see happening on some sort of timeline that um elon musk has has, has talked about I'm pretty sure it will. I mean, you know, for Elon, you always got to take everything he says with a grain of salt on timelines and ambition and all that. Um, you know, he tends to set these goals. They usually don't happen anywhere close to what he said, but they usually do happen. <laughs> and in this case, it's not just Elon, right? I know enough of, of the SpaceX top engineers. I mean, they are very convinced Starship is real, that it can get to Mars. I think for sure you're going to see years of just sending industrial equipment and things like that to mars long before you send a human the human question is still things have to get better that's a long ride <laughs> to mars and you better be sure you can come back if you want to so a lot of stuff has to happen between here and there but will spacex start putting stuff on mars i think in like actually sort of the relatively near-ish future yes I, I i'm quite convinced of that Ashley, you keep writing the books that I keep praying someone writes and you keep writing them. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I hope you have something else in mind, but thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. <laughs>